I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, begin reading at verse 1. You're using a pew Bible that can be found on page 962. Let us now hear God's word. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus far the reading of God's word made his blessing upon the preaching and teaching of it. Congregation of Christ, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is, those who humble themselves in their spirit. They, they understand and know their creatureliness before their creator. They know who they are in their spirits, that they are poor. Blessed are those who mourn, that is, the ones who mourn sin and all its consequences, not just personal, private sins, but also corporate sins. Not only personal and corporate sins, but also the sin and evil that we see in the world, the persecution of the, that happens from nations and powers and the enemies of Christ against the church. For example, this past week, did your heart not mourn and grieve what's going on in the Middle East? Or are we cold and callous to these things? As I mentioned before, this idea of mourning, those who mourn shall be comforted. Most often in the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, involves or consists of those who mourn being persecuted by the enemies of God. And they will find comfort in Christ. They've already found comfort, find comfort in Christ, but that comfort in Christ will come when he returns. That's the first and second beatitude. Poor in spirit, those who mourn. This morning we look at blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's look first at the condition of the blessed. That is the condition of those who are meek. Blessed are the meek, or blessed are those who are meek. Who are the meek? How do we define this condition or state? Many interpreters believe that Jesus is using a similar word to that in 
the first beatitude, poor in spirit, that they essentially mean the same thing. To be in poor in spirit is to be meek. Now, in many respects, that is true. There are many similarities between the two beatitudes in that regard. And the similarity is that both the poor in spirit and the meek possess humility. Humility. But there's a difference. Christ isn't just repeating himself using similar words. No, each word has a specific meaning, emphasizes a certain way in the Christian life that we are called to live. And so what is he referring to when he talks about the meek? Yes, meek is humility, but meek consists of a a gentleness with strength. A gentleness with strength. The word meek can also be translated mild or gentle. Jesus says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's saying, I am meek and humble in heart. Meekness, then, is not weakness, as you've heard the world say, meekness is weakness. Well, this is why meekness is not weakness, because it is a gentleness that possesses a strength, a strength that comes from outside of ourselves because we by nature do not possess a weakness pleasing to God or a meekness pleasing to God. The meek possess a gentle spirit with an inner power and strength from God. After all, meekness is a fruit of the Spirit, and in translations it's translated as gentleness. But that word is meekness, the same word. They're interchangeable with the idea of strength being behind it. Now that's what the word means, but what does it look like? How do you know if you're a meek person? That's the question. Okay, I can define it. It's a gentleness with strength. Okay, so what? What does that look like? Well, the meek doesn't assert himself over others in order to advance his cause. It's at the heart of meekness. He doesn't assert himself over others in order to promote his agenda promote his own personal hobby horse, to get on his bully pulpit and tell you what you need to know and do. He doesn't advance his own agenda by trying to throw his weight around with the hope that he will win people over on his side. Not using truth not using humility, not using gentleness, but rather using his pride and arrogance and selfish ambitions. Furthermore, what does a meek person look like? Well, he's one who, resent, who uh, isn't resentful and he doesn't bear a grudge. He insists on his own way. 
You remember one of the definitions of love is that love does not insist on its own way? Because to be meek is to be one who loves. You see, love is the motive. Love is the root. The love of Christ, the love of God is the root of one's meekness. So what arises out of a heart that loves Jesus and loves God and loves the will of God shows forth by the way he is meek towards other people. Insisting not on his own way, but rather promotes God's will, God's purposes, God's love. And he does so with a gentleness in strength. He promotes God's will with gentleness and strength, even if that means suffering harm in the process. I'm breaking it down now. I hope you can see that I'm breaking down this idea of who the meek are. We defined it, someone who's mild, gentle. He doesn't assert his own power over people. He doesn't assert his own will over people. I'm showing you what this looks like. How do, what does it mean to be a meek person before the Lord and before others? But because it means these things, that it is strength and weakness and doesn't assert one's power over another, in this way, meekness is not weakness. Think about that. Are we going to say that Jesus, who came meek and mild, was weak? Blasphemous. No, he had a gentleness about him and a strength about him, being anointed by the Spirit to fulfill the calling of God the Father in his life, even unto death on the cross. The meek know suffering, and they know suffering in the strength of God far greater than the world can know it. That is why meekness is not weakness. I can give many biblical examples, and you could probably recite many biblical examples to me and to others. Abraham was a man of meekness. Did he insert himself over his family, Lot, when Lot came to him? Did he insert his will or God's will? Moses was a man of meekness when he passed on the glories and riches of Egypt and turned to God and was concerned about the riches of Christ as we learn in the epistle to the Hebrews. Much can be said about the apostles after the day of Pentecost and how they suffered in great adversity. Were they by any stretch of the imagination Weak? Yes, they acknowledge that they were physically weak. That's why Paul says, when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. You see that paradox? When I am weak, then I am strong. Because he knows where his strength comes from. He acknowledges that he's poor in spirit, 
but in Christ he is the strength of the Lord. And therefore he can say, I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. Is that weakness? All of these are modeling their lives after who? The great example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is our great example of meekness? Jesus. How was he meek? The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, assumed a human nature, human likeness, yet without sin. He endured humiliation. He came to fulfill the Father's will, not his own. Not my will, but thy will be done. That is meekness. That is meekness. He humbled himself, poor in spirit, taking the form of a servant so that he advances his Father's cause. And he was meek, and mild in the cradle, in the manger. Mild he lays his glory by. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. By the meekness of Christ, man no more may die. That's why we sing a Christmas hymn this morning. Christ came as the supreme great example of meekness. And even when he was a wee little tyke, boys and girls, 12 years old at the temple, and his mom and dad were looking for him. And they found him saying, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great, in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Jesus came to fulfill the Father's will. To obey his Father. John 14. He came to obey the Father. And so the Son submitted himself to the Father's will and subordinated himself according to his human nature subordinated himself to his father's purposes and plans so that Israel might know that the father sent the son to be the Messiah, David's royal son, to be Yeshua, to be the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, and to save his people from their sins. Why Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Find rest for your souls in the meekness of Christ. In his first coming, he didn't come to be crowned king. In his first coming, he didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom, sitting on David's royal throne. In his first coming, he didn't come to reign and rule visibly. 
Now, indeed, he's doing those things at the right hand of the Father. We live in a spiritual kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, says Jesus. But the Jews expected from the Messiah a man who would come to sit on David's throne, to get rid of the Romans and all the enemies of God, to sit on his throne and rule with his scepter in his hand, visibly, that the kingdom visibly would come. But Jesus came in meekness to save his people from their sins by his death and resurrection. And we enter the kingdom through repentance and faith in him. We receive the grace of forgiveness and eternal life because King Jesus conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell in his first coming. Paul and the apostles based their ministry off the meekness of Christ. In fact, he appeals to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So Paul's ready to come to Corinth with gentleness and strength. He knows that there are those at Corinth who are mocking him, mocking his ministry, speaking ill of him. Oh, Paul's not a true apostle. He's a weak man. And Paul's saying, if I have to, I'm going to come and I'm going to be bold. See, you can be meek and bold. They're not mutually exclusive. We'll look at that further in the application. And so Paul and the early Christians were willing to suffer than to inflict injury to others because they knew the meekness of Christ. That's the condition of the blessed. Now the promise of inheritance. The Beatitudes are extraordinary and comforting teachings of Christ because they teach us about the Christian life and how to live the Christian life in God's kingdom, how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, how to live for Christ in this world as citizens of the kingdom, how we are to live contrary to the world. And so these Beatitudes speak so profoundly to the different kinds kind of life that Christians live compared to the world. In other words, Jesus describes a people who live counter-culturally, who live differently, who live an otherworldly life here on earth. And so when we consider the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That is something that is different than what the world thinks of inheritance. Jesus promises an inheritance that is so radically different than the, what the world considers an inheritance and how to achieve that inheritance. According to the world, this makes no sense because it is the mighty and aggressive, the one who throws his weight around to get what he wants to insert his, his power, his authority, 
for his own personal agenda. I want to conquer a land or a nation. I'm going to use force. I'm going to go in and conquer and destroy. The promise of inheritance belongs to the mighty and proud and to, to those who conquer the weak and lowly. That's, that's what the world thinks. If you want an inheritance, you go at it hard even at the cost of somebody else's reputation or life. Jesus promises something radically different for the meek. He promises the meek who are blessed that they will inherit the earth. It's not the proud or the pompous or the strong man that will inherit the promise. It's the meek Christian. And such a promise to the meek isn't new to Jesus' words here. Jesus is really expounding or will expound upon in the Sermon on the Mount what a meek person is, but it, it comes from the Old Testament. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 37. Beginning at verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 22. Beginning at verse 21, actually. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Psalm 37 helps us understand, it unpacks what Jesus is saying here concerning the promise of the inheritance that it is for the righteous, it is for the godly, that it is for those who are in Christ and have faith in his name. And the unbeliever or ungodly will be cut off or destroyed. That means they will undergo judgment and will not have a right to the inheritance. And so what we learn here is that the promise of the inheritance directs our attention to God's promise to remove the unbeliever and wicked and evil and replace the land with the righteous and godly. And here particularly we're talking about the land of Canaan, the promised land in Psalm 37. The land promised to Abraham and his offspring that God will give him a land. And we'll get to that in a moment. 
as we're talking about the promise of the inheritance for now. But God will supplant the wicked and plant the meek and grant them an inheritance in the earth. In Christ, in Christ, the meek have been vindicated by Christ's death and resurrection, and we shall be vindicated in His second coming and inherit that promise. But we also learn that the promise of the inheritance is now. It is present. Because we have received the riches of God's glorious inheritance in Christ. All those blessed benefits that Paul speaks of in Ephesians and in Colossians. The redemption by His blood. The forgiveness of sins. The indwelling of the Spirit who is the down payment The guarantee of what? Of the inheritance to come. But even now, we come to Christ. We come to God knowing that we are citizens of another world, another land. And we have already received this promise. This is why the author of Hebrews says that the Hebrew Christians joyfully, joyfully endured the plundering of their property because they knew that they had a possession that was abiding. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. They had a a possession that was forever and abiding, that they were now partaking of. That's why the author of Hebrews will go on to say that this promise of inheritance is already happening, because we have already approached Mount Zion the city of the living God. We have already approached the inheritance with innumerable innumerable angels. But the promise, the promise given here by Christ that the meek shall inherit the earth, we have to remember was given before Christ's death and resurrection. After His death and resurrection, the promise of that inheritance starts taking effect where we start experiencing and knowing this inheritance even now. This promise of inheritance directs our attention to God's promise to the meek. This promise of inheritance is presently known in the life of believers. This promise of inheritance, now listen carefully. This promise of inheritance is the Christian's right. Oh, we have no rights. Well, that's true, but it's not true. What do you mean? Christ declares, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When someone writes a will, and they declare in that will, Who's going to inherit the property or whatever? When the person dies, those names in that will, they have the right to those possessions. God made a promise to his people. A new covenant. A testament. And Jesus Christ, by his blood, signed that will. Jesus Christ, by His blood, 
purchased for us an eternal inheritance, an eternal redemption that becomes our right. Again, this is not merited. It's not by works that we have this right. No, it's by grace. By grace, God's grace, we have received the promise of the inheritance by the precious blood of Christ, and he confirmed it in his death. And we see it and taste it in the Lord's Supper, that confirmation. How do you know that you receive the promise of inheritance? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Does he live in you? Does he reign in you? Well, how do I know? Have you repented of your sin? I encourage you to come back this evening to hear about repentance because we need to hear it because I think we have somewhat of an interesting view of repentance at times in the church. Have we repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received the Spirit of Christ? Spirit is that guarantee or down payments of the promise of the inheritance. And so we look forward in hope. We experience it now, presently. Christ says, you shall inherit the earth. The promise of the inheritance is future. And so we look thirdly at the scope of the inheritance. For they shall inherit the earth. The scope of the inheritance extends to the earth, to the land. An inheritance that will never perish or fade away. An eternal inheritance sealed by the Spirit. And so the scope of inheritance, this land promise... This land promise that was given to Abraham and his offspring. This promise that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promise that Israel will receive the land. And the land will be a place of peace and rest. It was called the Holy Land because God reigned among his people. It was called the Holy Land because God will be their God and they will be his people. And they will know peace on every side. Well, Joshua was appointed to lead the people and apportion the land to Israel, the 12 tribes. But Joshua, because of sin, could not give rest to the people. King David was called. He was a man who was a friend of God. He too sinned. He too could not bring peace, eternal peace to the people in the land. And therefore they suffered an exodus, or um, an exile, rather. They experienced temporary peace, but when God, they rebelled against God, God sent them into exile. This land promise is truly a foreshadowing of the land promise to come. You shall inherit the earth. You shall inherit the land. It is a promise to God's people that there is an eternal land, an eternal earth, where there will be eternal peace. You ever be away from home? It's, it's like when you're at home, you, you find yourself at peace at times. When there's peace in the home, you find yourself at peace. When you're away from the long time, you say, I can't wait to get home. Why do you say that? Because there's a sense of peace and comfort of being in your own home. When you're in your own land, when you travel out of the country, for example, 
There are times where you feel you get what? Homesick. You want to go home. You want to be with your people, with your family in your home. There's something about home. There's something about land. There's something about the earth that the Lord speaks of here. And it is a place of peace and rest. And that is the place reserved for the meek. Peace and rest will encompass the whole earth when Christ comes again. When all the families of faith in Christ have been blessed and will dwell in a land flowing with milk and honey, it will be a land where God's people will assemble from all the earth worshiping Him and Christ will reign as King forever. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, that heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven in the new heavens and new earth, in that land where there will be no more sin, no more unrighteousness, no more wickedness. Because as Psalm 37 says, God will give them the inheritance. That's what awaits us. That's what makes the meek happy, (laughs) blessed. I want to close with points of application. If you want to turn your notes, your uh, sermon notes over. As you and I consider how we live the Christian life in meekness, I want us to consider, interestingly, this may be interesting, but I want us to consider what meekness is not to help us understand what meekness is. First, meekness isn't what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls as indolence or showing no interest, or we can also call laziness. Meekness isn't laziness. Meekness is putting your hand to the plow and getting busy about the Christian life, living the Christian life in the strength of the Lord. Second, and is related to the first, meekness, meekness isn't passivity. That is, meekness isn't living the Christian life, not, in, not wanting to engage others in the Christian faith, or not wanting to influence others by teaching or counseling or comforting or encouraging. Meekness isn't passivity, just sitting back and doing nothing. That's not meekness. That piggybacks off the first one. It's laziness. Thirdly, meekness isn't being nice. A pleasant person may not be nice. Or a pleasant person, I should say, may not be meek. Fourth, meekness isn't a quiet person. Meekness isn't measured by the number of words you and I say or speak. Meekness has to do with using words and speaking words that glorify Him and honor Him and promote His will and not my personal agenda. So meekness isn't measured by the number of words that you speak, but what you say as it relates to God's will and purposes for our lives. 
Fifth, meekness isn't know, be, being a know-it-all. Meekness isn't a know-it-all. In other words, then, the meek are teachable. The meek are teachable. How teachable are you? How teachable am I? Do you have what's called a teachable spirit? Or do you think, or I think, we know it all? Sixth, meekness isn't self-pity. Meekness isn't feeling sorry for ourselves. Such an attitude really draws our attention to ourselves. It's about me. That's not meekness. Seventh, meekness isn't concerned about self and selfish ambitions. It's the work of the Spirit in hearts in the hearts of Jesus' disciples because meekness doesn't come naturally or by nature. We need a radical transformation of the heart so that our will is conformed to His will. Our desires are conformed to His desires. So meekness isn't concerned about self and selfish ambitions, but concerned about God, loving God and loving neighbor. Congregation, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Look to Jesus, your great example of meekness. Look to the many examples who modeled their lives after Jesus. Paul, the apostles, even the Old Testament saints. And on this side of glory, on this side of Canaan, know this, that blessed are the meek, for there is a day, says Jesus, when we shall inherit the earth. We shall inherit the earth by God's grace. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for calling your people into your kingdom. By your spirit and word of the gospel, you have removed the heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, making us sensitive and responsive to the call of faith and repentance, to the call of faith, hope, and love. And we pray that you, O oh God, will teach us the way of meekness, even the meekness of Christ our Lord. May we not consider ourselves more highly than we ought but rightly consider ourselves in the way that you view us and see us. Teach us, O oh Lord, to practice meekness, that it may arise from a heart of love for you and love for our neighbor. Humble us by your grace. Humble us by your gospel, so that we, O oh Lord, may commit our ways to you, and that our will, our wills, our desires would be conformed to yours. We pray this in Jesus' name.